This week on Keeping Faith. I actually remember I would have been in like the summer between grade four and five or five and six that I went to a church up the street from us that had Bible vacation school and my next door neighbor went to it. And I remember being like, I want to go to Bible vacation school with my next door neighbor. And my parents were like, okay. And it wasn't until that point in time that I actually realized that like the story of Jesus Christ wasn't just a story, like that it was somebody's sacred text. Because I grew up with this like understanding that all faiths have a place and that like, we're going to teach you what they say. We're not going to tell you that you need to believe in them. So I knew that there were other faiths and stuff like that. But because I was a child and because I didn't really understand the story behind Jesus, Jesus Christ. I always kind of like pictured him as equal playing fields as like Christopher Robin. Danielle Weber grew up struggling to explain her Unitarian Universalist faith to her friends. Because while she went to church on weekends and attended Sunday school, services began with the lighting of a chalice and included Buddhist meditations and modern poetry more frequently than stories about Jesus. So as an adult, when she began looking for a career to bring together all of who she is, she saw it as an opportunity to dig deeper into the complex faith she's held dear all her life, going to seminary to become a Unitarian Universalist minister. Reverend Danielle and I talk about her life as a third-generation Unitarian Universalist and how this family legacy has deeply shaped her life. She describes the evolution of her beliefs from the time she was a kid to being a minister now, and how at the core of it all remains a deep trust in every person's capacity for good. And she talks about how we're all inherently spiritual, and that being part of a spiritual community, whatever form that takes, helps you live into your values in a way you can't do alone. Because how do you carry forward the legacy of your past? This is her story. I'm Marin Smith, and you're listening to Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek Territory in Hamilton, Ontario, and Reverend Danielle Weber lives on Siach Okanagan Territory in Kelowna, British Columbia. Curious about whose land you're on? Visit keepingfaithpod.com about for a list of Indigenous mapping resources or get in touch with your local Native Centre or Council. What is giving you hope right now? And is there a story from your life right now that has connected you with your sense of faith or hope? Yeah, so I think for the most part, abundance in produce has been giving me significant hope. So I live in the Okanagan Valley. Lots of people call it the Napa Valley of Canada. So we've got the wine and grapes and all of the fruit and vegetables. So we had the front yard garden this year. Um, 
So we, <laughs> I live in the church's parsonage, and before it became the parsonage, the couple that owned it were urban farmers. And so the front yard has 450 square feet of raised garden beds. Wow. And so it's like four, 13 or 14 garden beds. And I every single one of them was filled this summer. So zucchini and tomatoes um, are probably like the thing that are the most persistent. And I don't know if I'm going to ever be able to kill them. Kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> um, this idea of like, no matter how problematic, like the smoke that we've been enduring, the drought that we've been enduring. I mean, it was five degrees here this morning. Um, when we woke up and I went out to my tomato patch and there are still like my tomato plants are still flowering. Like they're still producing fruit, which is just amazing to me. So something about that abundance and just the ability to continue, no matter how rough the environment is, feels really hopeful and exciting and the possibilities there just seem endless. The other thing is um, I belong to this organization. I'm a volunteer for, it's called BC Tree Fruit Project. Hmm. And it's a program in the Okanagan that matches people who have fruit trees with fruit that they don't want with organizations that can use the extra fruit. And so I go and pick produce, apples and peaches and well, not many people want to give away their peaches, <laughs> plums and quinces and apricots, and then take them to school lunch programs, also the homeless shelters and the food banks and different things like that. I delivered this morning, I delivered 120 pounds of Spartan apples to a preschool oh, wow. program. Yeah, so... Something about that, like, abundancy of the earth providing everything. Um, well, I don't know everything, but providing enough or more than enough for what we need. It's just really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to me. You mentioned two things in what you said that I, I think connect to the idea of resiliency that nature has. And and I know like we all know about the fires that happen in California and Washington and Oregon and, and you've lived through the smoke of that <laughs> over the summer as well. And it, I think it's just amazing to also see that, that nature will regenerate from that as well. And it might take time and it might take, um, but that growth will come from that. And I think that, that's a lesson that we can learn from nature really clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's pretty amazing. One of the other things that I did recently was take the, uh, with the children's program at our church, we went to a salmon run where the salmon are spawning, laying their eggs for next springtime. And just like witnessing that kind of the uh, resiliency of these salmon, but not just the resiliency. I mean, there was, there were a lot of dead fish in that Creek as well. And so just recognizing that that's a part of the cycle of their lives, but also just like 
recognizing that all of them are going to be replaced by thousands of more fish and make their way out to the ocean somehow is incredible. And that it's all happening right now in the midst of what feels like the worst possible time. So, yeah. Yeah, the world keeps turning. Nature keeps moving forward, even if we feel like our lives are stuck or stopped or changed. Exactly. Yeah. Was gardening or this connection to nature something that goes back in your history? Was that a part of your family life growing up? Yeah. So actually on both sides of my family, my dad's father grew up on a farm in, well, outside of Winnipeg. And um, my mom grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan. And so there's gardeners on both sides of my family. And when I was a kid, we lived in Regina and we got a community garden, which 25, 30 years ago was not as cool as it is now. (laughs) It was not, it was definitely not as popular as it is now. So we had this massive lot of, I think it was like probably 20 by 20 And before school and after school, we would stop at the garden and harvest or water or do whatever it was needed because we we actually lived in row housing until my family moved to Calgary. And so that was a huge part of my young, young days. We moved when I was in grade three. And then it wasn't so much a part of my, I don't know, middle to teenage years Although it was being outside and being in nature was always a part of it. I was grew up in scouts. And so we did a lot of camping and hiking and canoeing and uh, winter camping and all of that kind of stuff. And then when I was um, a young adult, I guess I probably still am a young adult. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when I was like 19, 20, 21, I got a community garden at the Calgary church. Um, They have like 16 or 20 four by eights garden beds. And I had that for three or four years before I moved out to Toronto. So gardening and vegetables have always really been a part of a part of my growing up. So I'm curious then, because you were talking about things that were an important part of your life growing up, and you mentioned the the church that you grew up near. Um, what was your life like growing up? What were you taught about the world? And what were you taught about faith and hope in the midst of all of the gardening and connecting with nature as well? Yeah, so um, I was raised Unitarian. It was a small little fellowship in in Regina. So I guess I grew up Unitarian and knowing that this is who I was and was a part of my identity, whether or not it was a huge part of my actual physical uh, schedule. But I think the things that I was taught the most was that everyone was good. This idea of Nowadays, it would be something called like universal salvation, although that was not language that I had when I was a child at all. It was this idea that everybody was good and worth saving. And I never actually used that language either, in the sense that um, we were all going to go to heaven, but that we were all worthy of having a good life right now was something that was really huge in my life as I was growing up. It's this idea that 
it didn't matter who was bullying you or who was being mean or who you didn't like. Everybody was worth the time it took to listen to them. Everybody was worth the attention that it took to figure out what they needed. Everybody was worth the energy. Just every everybody had worth. And it was very much a part of the practices that I saw my parents doing. And so I'm not exactly certain how that links back to my understanding of growing vegetables, but there's definitely like a connection that um, the connection that is there is that if we are all worthy and good and capable of or worthy of receiving dignity, um, that wasn't just humans, that was all beings um, and the recognition that we needed the earth, we needed the food that the plants were giving us, we needed the connections to other people, we needed connections to animals, that there's this connection from my worth and dignity to your worth and dignity, and the fact that we need one another to realize that, and then the fact that we need the other beings on this planet to recognize that possibility as well. So not just human to human, but ecosystem of a human to the ecosystem of the community around it, to the ecosystem of the earth around that. So this recognition that without one of us, things fall apart. And, you know, you can't have a successful garden if you don't have water, but you have everything else. And so like, we can't have a successful humanity if we don't have successful individuals. Yeah. There's something about that like connection between the inherent worth and dignity of every human and the interdependent web of which we all belong. That was so part of my childhood formation, I guess. So how did you develop your own understanding of that as a kid? Do you remember how you felt about that or how you experienced that in your own life? How was that made kind of real for you? So this kind of concept comes up a lot for me in my faith journey is this like balance board or seesaw between the whole and the individual and trying to figure out where in in that balancing game, you can find equilibrium. Hmm. Um, And so like, this has been a very much a part of so much of my story going back and back, Um, like how my needs are in weight with those of the needs of those around me. And I can't think of any specific examples or understandings of like, where that holds true for me. Um, from my childhood, except that it was that that little like, how do I understand what my needs are in relationship to what the community needs are? And when can I say my needs are more important or the community needs are more important? There was always that kind of back and forth for me. Yeah. It's very much also the idea of like boundaries, right? And where mm-hmm. where personal boundaries and community boundaries are and where do they meet? And I I think for anyone that also grows up in a community or a faith community or a community in general, that's constantly a question. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um so your family, if I remember correctly, is Unitarian going back for several 
generations, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, my grandparents, uh, my dad's parents found the church when he was a toddler in Ottawa and they raised him first at the Ottawa church and then they moved to Hamilton or Burlington, but went to the Hamilton church. Um, I think when he was 12 and they're still there, my, my grandparents are still members of the Hamilton church or my grandmother is. And then when my parents met, my mom didn't have a very strong religious upbringing. I mean, she, she was a Christmas and Easter Christian. Um, They went to church when there was a funeral or whatever, but there was nothing in their regular lives about that. And so um, just like a lot of young adults, my dad kind of stopped going to, to church when he didn't have to anymore. And then he went back to church when they had kids. And so I grew up in the Regina Church, was dedicated to the Regina Church, and then moved to the Calgary Church when I was in grade three. Yeah. Yeah. So did you feel a part of like a legacy (laughs) that like being Unitarian was part of what your family did or what it was an identity your family had? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. And also like my dad's the eldest and I was born before his youngest sibling left the house. But at that time, when I was like two or three, and my dad's brother left the house, my grandma, who was a housewife, um, was like, I'm going back to school, and became like went to seminary to become a minister. And so not only was it like the story of my family of we are Unitarians, um, but it was also like, my grandmother is studying to be a minister in the Unitarian church and she works for the church. And so it was being Unitarian was definitely a part of my story. And I remember constantly being like attempting to explain to kids that I went to Sunday school, like kids at my school that I went to Sunday school, but it wasn't a Christian Sunday school. And so I needed other people to know that we were not Christian. And so this was a huge (laughs) part of like my growing up of like, yeah, I go to church on Sunday. Yeah, it's a big part of my life. No, I don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> was that how what was that like to navigate as a kid? Did you was it tough to figure out how to explain or or how did you come to the place where you were okay to talk about it and also okay with in yourself if you felt like you didn't quite fit what other people expected church to look like or Sunday school to look like? Yeah. So uh, when I was living in Regina, it felt very much like a a thing to be proud of and to try and explain to people. And I remember coming up with this idea that Unitarianism is like, it's an umbrella and it's big enough to like hold all of the religions underneath it. And I think about that theology in my today brain and I'm like, oh, that's really not excellent theology. (laughs) But as a child under the age of 10, that was what I told people. I was just like, just imagine it like an umbrella and like Christians can fall under it and Muslims can fall under it. And like all of these people are like protected by my umbrella of Unitarianism. Right. <laughs> and so that was that was how I explained it to people and then so I have a really interesting relationship with church growing up because when we moved from Regina to Calgary we moved from a church that had 
45 members that didn't have a minister to a church that had 200 members, 180 members, and did have a full-time minister. And so we felt really lost and disconnected. And like my dad was a board member at the Regina Fellowship. My mom was the DRE, like she taught us religious education because there wasn't anybody else to do it. I mean, there were only my brother and I and then another two kids. There was like two families in this little church. Right. And so then you go to a church that's so huge that it just swallowed us, right? Like we didn't really have a place to, you know, stick up our hands and say, I volunteer here. And so we kind of didn't attend right away. Like we'd go and then we'd stop and then we'd go and then we stop. And so for a lot of like, if I moved at the end of grade three, and it was probably not until I was in like, grade seven, that I really started to attend regularly again. And so for that part, like Unitarianism was a part of me and it was who I was as a human being. And it was a part of my identity, but I didn't practice with a community that was just who I was. And then it was constantly a conversation around my family. Like my family was always like continuing to have open conversations and wanting us to recognize what was possible. And I actually remember I would have been in like the summer between grade four and five or five and six that I went to um, a church up the street from us that had Bible vacation school for like one week each summer. And my next door neighbor went to it. And I remember being like, I want to go to Bible vacation school with, with my next door neighbor. And my parents were like, okay. And it wasn't until that point in time that I actually realized that, like, the story of Jesus Christ wasn't just a story, like that it was somebody's sacred text. And that there were, because I grew up with this, like, understanding that all faiths have a place and that, like, we're going to teach you what they say. We're not going to tell you that you need to believe in them. So I knew that there were other faiths and stuff like that. But because I was a child and because I didn't really understand the story behind Jesus Christ, I always kind of like pictured him as equal playing fields as like Christopher Robin, who's like this kind of like, you know, Jesus Christ has a whole bunch of really good things to think about and say, and is really important for these reasons. And Christopher Robin is really important for these reasons. And he has these really important things to say. And it wasn't until like, I asked my parents to go to vacation Bible school camp with my next door neighbor friend that I realized that like, they are not equal. And, um, and then I was just like, this is weird. And I think it was like after that summer that we started attending church regularly because they were like, okay, she needs to have more than just this recognition of whatever it is that we're able to give her. Right. Yeah. And so it, it's kind of interesting that you you seem to have like a curiosity though in in like you were attracted to learn about these different, you know, spiritual traditions and you'd already had a little bit of exposure through the Unitarian Church. Did that continue as you became a teen and, and moved forward? Yeah, yeah, actually. So 
One of the other things that I I was going to mention earlier was like, how did I explain to other people that I was a Unitarian as I started going back to church as a as a teen and like trying to figure out what it meant to be a Unitarian and how to express that to a community that doesn't really understand it outside of the fact that it's church and Christianity. Um, my first boyfriend was the son of a pagan priestess. <laughs> And so like the people that I hung out with outside of church, like the people that I was drawn to at school and through scouting were all the people that didn't fit into the box that society that like, you know, North American Christianity world kind of creates for us. Mm -hmm. And so it definitely that like trying to understand what his faith or his parents' faith was and celebrating Samhain and Yuletide instead of Christmas was a huge part of like my 14, 15 year old world. Right. And then um, when I went to college, I did an undergraduate in religious studies. It was a huge part of like wanting to understand different faiths and and it was hard because religious studies doesn't actually explain other faiths they look at religion through a, a model of history and and not through the the lens of theology so it was a little bit different but it was the closest that i could get to trying to figure out like what buddhism was like and what I, I just loved taking taking Eastern religion courses. And then most of it was historical. So a lot of like Reformation kind of stuff. But yeah, it's definitely been a part of a part of my exploration of trying to figure out different world religions and all of that shift and how our theology fits in with other faiths and how it doesn't. Was there ever a time where you were resistant to going to church or resistant to being a Unitarian or or threw up your hands and were just like, I don't want, this is too difficult. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Yeah. So a couple of different things. I definitely spent a lot of time dabbling in other um, faith ideas, like a Wiccan or pagan was definitely a huge part of my, my spiritual journey as a teenager, even after the relationship that I was in fell apart. I must have had like a, an entire bookshelf full of like paganism for dummies and how to be a witch. And like it was right around the early 2000s. So I felt like it, the new age wave was like, you know, on a peak at that point in time. Right. Um, and for me, that always felt really cohesive to Unitarianism. It never felt like there was any sort of challenges or hiccups. And I think that a big part of that has to come with having done solstice ceremonies at church and and having like a quarterly practice with um, like a, a quarterly practice uh, reflection group that I participated in for a long time. Um, so those those two kind of conversations intertwined very easily for me. Mm-hmm. But one of the times that I did really struggle with the church as a younger kid was around the age of 16. I was a part of youth group at the at the church. 
and had made a really close relationship with um, another girl there. And she and I had a falling out and it was incredibly awkward to continue at the church. Like just, I mean, it was like teenage drama, but it felt so significant because of like the covenants that we practice and because of like the way that that we talk about interacting or engaging with our conflicts and, and being vulnerable and all of those things and um, attempting to like become in right relations and attempting to be in community with this person that I was struggling with felt too much. It was, it was too much for me. And I had some amazing youth uh, leaders and my parents who were like, we can help you through conflict resolution, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, nope, I'm done. Peace out. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to start being available to go to my job on Sunday mornings. I'm not going to do this anymore. (laughs) And so I did. I stopped attending church probably for like five or six years. I was just like, I can't do that. Yeah. So what called you back then? (laughs) Uh, I, I needed somebody to perform marriage ceremony. (laughs) Practical reasons. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So, um, shortly after leaving the church, I met a man that I partnered with and, um, he proposed when I was 21 and he didn't have a uh, family church practices or anything along those lines. And I still had really strong personal understandings of being a Unitarian. It was very much a part of my identity, whether or not I participated in, um, in Sunday services or, or part of a community explicitly. It was very much a part of my identity. You know, going to visit my grandparents at Christmas time or during the summer, I was going to their church or, you know, we were, we had a bunch of practices that I very much align with my understanding of Unitarianism. And so even though I wasn't a part of the community at that point in time, I wanted to be married through Unitarian church And it just so happened that at that point in time, we had an interim minister. And so I had a lay chaplain do my my wedding. And um, she was really good. Like My parents had continued to go to the church and she was good friends with my mom. And so we kind of got talking about other things and was like, hey, did you know that we have a minister coming? Maybe you'd be interested in coming to see the services and see what she's all about. And and it it just snowballed. And then I was at the church and I was doing all of the things after my wedding. So it was pretty easy to claw me back into it, I think. (laughs) I don't know if I would say that I was missing it, but it definitely became part of something that I recognized wasn't there. I think what what interests me a lot about your story and and that I think will resonate with a lot of folks is I, I think sometimes when people leave faith communities or need to take a break from them, there's this sense that you have to leave all of that at the door. But what I'm hearing from you is that you were able to still keep your identity, even if you weren't showing up at a congregation every week, and that you were able to to hold that faith as your own still. And also that that you've lived a life where you can go and then take time off, and then you can come back and be a part of it again, that there's 
there's not a perfection in your attendance. There's not a perfection in you having to always, you know, yeah, <laughs> be going all the time and that that's okay. Yeah, no, that's very much. And actually, um, I spent some time journaling on the questions that you sent me. And um, that was a theme that I recognized very strongly in in my thoughts and reflections is this idea that my faith was a solitary faith and my faith was a community faith. Like both of those two things were true in every aspect of my, like every age demographic that I fit into and every different reiteration of what my faith is, is this recognition that I am a Unitarian because I believe in what Unitarian Universalism has to say. And I understand the theology and that understanding is real and important for me. And I'm a Unitarian Universalist because I belong to a community that is Unitarian Universalism. And I put my practices and my energy and my will to make the world better. I work through the church community. And so like both of those things have been really real and more explicit through my journey, but have always been true, no matter whether I've been a part of a community or not. Being a Unitarian Universalist for me has been very much both ends of that spectrum, part of something that I can do by myself and be a personal part of who I am and how I want to live in the world and be a part of a a community that asks me to live into those practices. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really beautiful reflection and balance that you articulated there. I'm curious then, after you came back to the church, you eventually then decided to follow the path of becoming a minister yourself and taking a real leadership role in the church. What sparked that interest? How did you start down that path? So I guess in this sense, if we follow the two different like parts of my spiritual identity, both of them have a, a voice here too. So I started becoming part of the leadership at the church. Um, I was on the caring committee. Um, I was in the soup kitchen helping make soup for the people who were shut in and things like that. When the new minister arrived, uh, she asked me if I would be on her committee on shared ministry, which is a committee that the people from the church participate in trying to figure out what the ministry of the community is going to be like, what is it that this faith community is going to do in the world? So I was very much a part of the leadership. And as I continued to have more of an understanding of what ministry looked like from the leadership aspect and trying to figure out all of my own story about who I am and who am I becoming, ministry felt like a place that I could really blossom, I guess. But also on the more personal and this other path that I've walked with my faith. As I was growing up as a child, there were three jobs that I wanted to have. So I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be able to teach other people and help them discover who they are and what they can learn and all of those other things. I wanted to be a lawyer 
Um, and I specifically wanted to be a lawyer for criminal court because I wanted to help the underdog and try and figure out the ways in which the law doesn't necessarily serve us best. And I think a big part of that had to do with being a teenager when the Canadian government legalized same-sex marriage. And like I was a part of a group of teenagers from Calgary who were part of petitioning the government to change that law. So there was this understanding of like helping the underdog and being an advocate for people who couldn't use their own voices. And then finally, I wanted to be a counselor or psychologist because I wanted to be able to listen to people's stories and help them figure out what was wrong and how they could fix it. And so there's something about me being in leadership in the church and recognizing the possibilities of what ministry could look like and me wanting to be a teacher, an advocate, and a counselor and recognizing that being a minister would allow me to teach people, advocate for people, and counsel people. Mm -hmm. It just kind of really felt like it fit. So I don't When people ask me what is the story of my call, this like notion that a higher power is calling us to step into this role of ministry, I tell them that I don't have one. It was more of this like long term um, figuring out of who I am and how I wanted to be in the world and recognizing that ministry was the best way in which I could act that out. Yeah, that's really interesting that that you found something that kind of interweaved all of those different parts of you. So it felt like in some ways this job was crafted for you. Yeah, absolutely. And all of those ways are still my most favorite parts of ministry. And my congregation knows this because I've told them that I don't like preaching Um, so like preaching and being like behind the pulpit and writing sermons is not my favorite part of ministry. And it's actually, well, I don't know if it would be the part I like the least, but it's definitely not that part. Um, the part that I love the most about ministry is like being in small classes, um, being in small groups and engaging with people, either teaching them about our history or our theology, or having conversations about really challenging things where we need to kind of like pull back our blinders and try and see the world through a different lens. Um, so like the social justice education kind of model or being in one-on-one relationships with people and helping them figure out what it means to be a spiritual person. So like those three aspects of education, advocating and counseling I'd love to leave the writing aside, but unfortunately, <laughs> that's the part of ministry that people actually pay for. So, right. <laughs> it ends up being the part that I have to fulfill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. So becoming a minister is a really different relationship with a faith tradition or a faith community than being a part of a congregation, even if you are, you know, very involved in and on many committees and boards and stuff. Did your understanding of your faith change as you went through the process of being in seminary and and all of that? And did your understanding of your own faith as a person change through the process of becoming a minister too? Drastically, actually. Um, And it's really interesting 
Somebody once put it that I grew up Unitarian Universalist and I didn't know what that meant. So I decided to go to seminary. Right. And that that feels like super accurate to me because when I started to recognize that my spiritual life as a community or as an individual, like I didn't really have the words to like go away from that idea of it being an umbrella. (laughs) Like I needed to have like a more mature understanding of what my faith meant to me. And I didn't know how to do that. And I didn't know where to go to get that. And even though I was participating in all of the different adult religious education classes I could, and I took the like building your own theology class. And I had all of those like conversations with my minister about trying to figure out what it meant. I still didn't understand. And so going to seminary felt like in part, it was like the next step to being a mature UU. It was like the next thing that I needed to do to be able to understand what it meant to be this person in the world. So, yeah. So, so then I go to seminary and my understanding of how to be in this world was drastically shifted, not just because it was seminary, but because I decided to go to seminary in the United States. And so the cultural differences between Canada and the U.S. were drastic that way and the way that social justice is engaged and the issues that people are engaging and all of these different kind of practices around democracy and and what it means to be a person in society is so different. And so there was that kind of clashing and understanding and reckoning, reckoning for me to figure out. But then also the way that it asked me to like really sink into the ideas that I had and I mean, think deeply about them because you're trying to figure out how to express a theology to other people. So you need to figure it out for yourself first. Yeah. And recognizing that I don't actually believe that UUism is an umbrella that's big enough for everybody to stand underneath. I think that there are people that don't fit under our umbrella and that we don't want to have under our umbrella. And so just like the shift that happened because of the questions that my professors were asking me, the the papers that I was being asked to write and the amount of personal reflection that I did through that process was, you know, it was hugely changing. And I think the most, like I, I referred to this earlier, that understanding of like my faith as a child being very the inherent worth and dignity of every person and the interdependent web of which we are all connected. Um, I think that that shifted for me to the the idea of the theology of universalism being this idea that there is good in all of us and we have the capacity to overcome any of our challenges. Some people aren't just inherently bad. Some people aren't just inherently evil. We all have this capacity to figure out and we just need to figure it out. And so my faith shifted from an idea of I am perfection to I have the ability to achieve perfection. And the way that I do that is through the fourth principle of the responsible search for truth and meaning. So this recognition that there is that possibility of figuring out why I'm here and what I'm meant to do. 
I just have to figure it out and do it. <laughs> like, it's not just something that's going to fall into my lap. It's something that I have to work for. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's really interesting because it, it kind of gives this freedom that we don't have to be at that finished product because I think sometimes you feel like, oh, well, if I'm good and if I'm perfect already, but you don't feel that internally, that can be like a little bit of a conflict. But what you're saying is that this is a journey and that we are on this journey and a part of this journey. And that's kind of the point. Yeah. Is that fair? Okay. So that is exactly. And as soon as you said the word journey, it made me think that's exactly what it is, is that our faith, my faith as a Unitarian Universalist, isn't that I am good and that I will go to heaven. It's that I am going to take steps on this journey towards making heaven. But that that notion of being on a journey is so accurate. It feels so important is that there is no end goal. The end goal, it's, it's just a journey. We're just going to work it out as we go along. Yeah. 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 So as a, as a part of that journey, what was the transition like for you then into actually like stepping in front of a congregation and then holding this space for a community that you were, you know, from a young child seated in the, the, well, not all Unitarian churches have pews, but like <laughs> the circle or the, or, or the, the chair or the pew, depending on where you were. Yeah. So it was super weird, right? Because I had, I did my first internship at the congregation that I grew up in, right? In Calgary, in this congregation that I had like ups and downs with that I didn't attend for a while. And then I did attend for a while. And so it was so hard, <laughs> like the member of the youth, the youth group advisor, who was all like, let me help you figure out how to have these hard conversations, was now all of a sudden one of my congregants, right? And so like, that whole piece of it was, it was weird and amazing. And, um, and yeah, it was hard. <laughs> and it was interesting to like, leave that church and try and figure out what it meant to be a Unitarian minister or a leader in Unitarian Universalism outside of that church mm. was also significant. So I, I ended up having a divorce right before I started um, seminary. And so there was this part of me that recognized that I needed to have more time with my family and more time in my in my beloved community to continue to heal from that relationship before I would be capable of leaving and doing an internship elsewhere. And so there was part of that like, I need to continue to figure out who I am while I'm becoming a minister. And I need to continue to figure out what Unitarian Universalism is to me outside of this community, outside of this church. So there was a whole lot of bouncing around. And I don't know if it's that much different than any young adult experience of trying to figure out who they want to be in their lives. And having been pigeonholed into certain definitions of who they are by family members or people in their community. But it like, I remember one of the people that I asked to be on my like when I got a committee on shared ministry um, at the Calgary church, 
one of the people that I asked to be on it was like a grandfather figure to me. He was somebody that I met in Sunday school as a teacher. And he he was also a gardener, ironically, taught us about gardening and composter worms and stuff like that. And was somebody that I kind of like had regular interaction with as a young person. And then asking him to be on the committee that helped me determine what ministry looked like for me. So there was like needing to have that connection to who I was all through my ages and who I was going to become. And also that needing to be away from it. It was so, it was such an interesting tightrope to walk. Yeah. So what did it feel like then when you kind of stepped out of that and were, you know, you came to Toronto and you, you also did an internship at, at, at first there and totally different community what what did that give you or how did that that change your sense of self as a minister? Uh, <laughs> that's actually really interesting um, because part of it felt like there was this this sense of I don't know if like completion is is the right word or like fully formed or or it was like you've already done an internship, you're a third generation Unitarian, you're gonna be fine and just like we're gonna throw you into the into the pen with the wolves or whatever. Like it was almost <laughs> almost like too much freedom. Um and I got this understanding of what ministry looked like outside of being really integrated into a community. I had the ability to see like what a prophetic ministry could look like. So like the idea of a prophet who has important things to say that people need to hear, hmm. which it's not that that never happened to me at Calgary. Lots of people loved to listen to my sermons and loved having me in the pulpit. But there was this idea that that's what people were coming for. Like, they weren't coming because they had this relationship with me. They weren't coming because there was like this conversation happening, this long-term conversation in our relationship kind of thing. It was that they were coming to listen to the important words that I had to say. <laughs> and so it, it almost felt like too much power. Like there's that kind of like, I'm not ready for this. This is more than I can handle kind of understanding of being a minister in our faith. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can see how that would be a very different shift and feel from the the real community sense you, you described all of the congregations you were at before had. So where do you find yourself now as a minister? I'm smack dab in the middle of those two conversations. <laughs> so I am a minister in a small church. Um, we have 54 members. So yeah, we're a small congregation, but there are a lot of really big conversations happening. Mm. So the congregation that I'm serving owns their own building and they own a house attached to the building but they are not raising enough money to be able to afford a minister. And so now the question is, do we start selling our property to continue ministry, professional ministry, I should say, but like, do we continue to have a professional ministry? We're going to need to either start pledging a whole lot more or sell our building. And so it feels all very much a part of like having this conversation around where does the path of this community go? 
that we were having at Toronto First versus like the really tight knit community of people that have known each other for so long and attempting to get more people into this community so that we can maybe afford that relationship. And so like, it's, it's so interesting because it definitely ties together those different pieces of my story of like creating the community, the structure of small groups and teaching and pastoral care and counseling and that like more administrative role of of how do we live into our values and into our faith as a community of people and how do we pay for that and how do we figure out what it looks like in the broader sense of a city that's very conservative and in a pandemic and <laughs> so trying yeah. to figure out all of those pieces along with it too right yeah yeah, it's it's interesting to me how being a part of, you know, a faith community was so important to your your life growing up and then it became your actual job and then now you're at this place where you're trying to figure out how communities can survive, you know, and how they can keep moving forward even if they have to change form. We're also at a point in time where, you know, especially young people are questioning the need for religious community or spiritual community, have struggled with the communities they grew up in, have maybe left or or don't know how to approach new ones, even if they're curious. So I'm I'm wondering what you think the value of, you know, spiritual community is. What has it given you and what do you think it can can offer people, even if people feel reluctant to kind of approach or become a part of these these groups? Yeah, it's, this is a huge part of my understanding of what ministry looks like for me as a human and not necessarily connected to the congregation that I'm serving is like, Mm. what is it that I have to offer the world that I'm living in? And I want to say that it has to do with um, offering people an understanding of what faith and spirituality can mean to them when faith and spirituality have hurt them in the past. Mm. Um, So my partner, Adam, uh, grew up united and has had a lot of struggles with staying connected to a faith community after he turned 19 or 20 and didn't really feel like the story made sense to him anymore and didn't really understand like how to be a spiritual person if he wasn't connected to a Christian theology. Mm. And also as part of that is that he's trans and wasn't accepted by his faith community. And so what does it look like for people who aren't accepted into a faith community or are pushed out of a faith community for the way that they identify and recognizing that, um, that there is still that need for spiritual sustenance and understanding and, and questioning and figuring out what it means to be a faithful person or, or spiritual, but not religious person, or these, all of these different understandings of how humans are, because we are spiritual people, like we are, there is that thing that 
that there's more to us than just going about our daily lives and not necessarily questioning what it's all about, right? And so I find myself being called into helping people understand what it means to be a spiritual person, even if their faith rejected them or if they rejected the faith that they were brought up in. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I would suggest is that being a spiritual person, being a person who gathers in a spiritual community allows you to figure that out. So I was thinking about this question and I go back to that understanding of the two different paths that I've walked that I can figure out something by myself as a spiritual person without having a community around me. But then being able to share that understanding of what it means to me and how important it is. I need to be able to express that to other people. I need to be able to communicate with other people what it is that I'm attempting to figure out. So Mm -hmm. one of the themes that I was looking at in the springtime was resilience. What does it mean to be a resilient person? And I can do a bunch of uh, education and reading and, and trying to figure it out by myself. And I might come up with an answer that I think is really good and right for me. But having the ability to talk about that with somebody else and being able to share my opinions and have them spoken back to me and recognizing what the difference is and all of those different pieces. Somebody being able to hold up that mirror and say, is this what you actually mean? Is this what you want to look like? Right. Allows me to go deeper in that process. And so that's a huge part of why I consider myself needing a community of faith to be able to go through that process of figuring out what I actually mean and what I have value in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really struck by you saying that, you know, you don't have to have it figured out in order to start becoming a part of a community. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the time we we're searching for places that match everything we feel like we believe or think we believe. And then we've quickly realized those places don't exist, (laughs) you know. Um, But what you're saying is that that is, again, part of the journey and part of the process is you show up somewhere with a half-baked idea and then you figure it out through being in community. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm going to be changed by the people that are there just as much as they are going to be changed because I am there, right? Like. That, that's part of the way that that community engagement works is that I am helping them polish their stone or their diamond just as much as they are helping me figure out mine, right? And so that constant friction between the good things and the bad things and getting closer to the good things, hopefully, ends up being where we, like the way that we can get there um, together. Yeah, it's definitely... Um, we can't we can't have it all figured out by ourselves or we can but then we're never going to be able to like find the piece the missing piece that we fit into in the rest of society right like we need to be able to walk that journey together with other people in order to figure it out yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i'm curious about if you have any advice or any words of support for people that are maybe thinking about putting their foot across the threshold (laughs) of a community, but aren't sure about how to take that first step. 
what what would you say to people that are kind of at that point in their journey? Um, I guess for me, I would want if somebody was attempting to figure out whether or not they belonged in in the community that I lead, I would want them to reach out to me. I would want them to be like, hey, my name is so and so and I've attended one service or I watched a service on YouTube or something that I saw on your Facebook feed was really cool. And, and, and I want to know more that that is what I would want somebody to do if they were attempting to join my community so that I could talk to them about what they're thinking and what they're feeling and help them understand whether or not we can support or help or like what we have to offer and what I would really love to be able to offer, but we don't have enough people yet. So come and help us offer it to the world. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's definitely where I would want people to start. Mm-hmm. And also, no matter how much I and I, I said this already, no matter how much education and learning and resources you are going to find online or at your local library about a community that's all the on on the solitude solitary path of faith understanding and you need to step onto that path of community to figure out whether or not it's right for you so reach out to somebody that you know that's in that community or reach out to somebody who's friendly and that you might have a connection to or somebody that I mean, maybe there's a greeter at the door or, you know, somebody who's saying hello in the chat box or whatever it is like. Right. I think that there's um, always no harm in sending those emails that say, I don't know who this is supposed to go to, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm looking for this and this. Could you direct me the right way? But that even even an email like that is a step towards being a part of a community, a step out of isolation, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if the minister is too busy, maybe they have somebody in charge of greeting. <laughs> I'm sure that they aren't. Honestly, I'm sure that they aren't. Every minister is excited about talking about why they why they believe what they believe. <laughs> yeah. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways, as an allegiance or duty that you have to something, as a belief or trust in something greater than yourself, or as something you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to put each part of this definition to you as a question. So in your life, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to? Um, I think that the thing that I have a duty to or an allegiance to is my spiritual quest. It's like to understand what it means to be the best person that I can be um, and what it means to be a part of the best community that I can be a part of and what it means to live into my highest self, my highest potential. So it sounds a little bit 
egotistical, I suppose, (laughs) but it feels as though I have that duty to become the best person that I possibly can be because that's what the world is asking of me. That's what humanity needs of me is to become the person that I have the potential of becoming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what do you put faith or trust in that's greater than yourself? Uh, So community um, and in its many different forms and variations. I believe that if we all have the capacity to come to community attempting to find our highest self or discovering our truest iteration of who we are supposed to be, that that community is going to be the sum of all of us and become bigger and better than all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And this question really comes from the place of, you know, I believe that we all have things at our core that we feel are true, even if they're just questions that we hold at our core as true. Yeah. So I believe without a shadow of a doubt that it is possible for us to all become the people that we are meant to be and develop into that highest self and participate in humanity as that divine being. I believe that it is possible and I am yearning to make it possible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, that's something that from everything we've talked about kind of has been continuous throughout your life. It sounds too. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly trying to find the balance and get there at the same time. Yeah. 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 So do you have a spiritual practice that you do on a regular basis? It could be weekly, monthly, yearly, even that helps to connect you to your sense of faith or hope. So I have multiple spiritual practices, some that I practice daily, some that I practice weekly, monthly, (laughs) quarterly, annually, all of them. And it became really clear as I was trying to figure it out. Uh, which one I was going to talk to that they kind of fall into like the same two paths of like solitary faithful person and interpersonal uh, community-based faithful person. But um, I think the one that has given me the most hope and the most connection to um, my faith has been writing morning pages um, and trying to figure out who I am and what's important to me and how do I hold on to those things in the midst of the apocalypse. (laughs) I've been practicing morning pages, which is a practice suggested by Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way. And so she talks about the practice of being able to um, write down all of the things that you don't want anybody to see or hear and don't possibly even want to let yourself see or hear so that you can make way for the things that you do want. Yeah. So how did you start doing this practice? How did it first come to you? I, I uh, threw a class at the Unitarian Church in Calgary, I guess. 
I don't remember the specifics of it, but I remember the woman that actually married me, the lay chaplain that married me, um, suggested the book to me and recommended that I try to work my way through it. So maybe it wasn't a class, maybe it was just her. So this this uh, woman suggests a couple of different practices to help you figure out what it means to become a better artist or to be allow yourself to become the artist that you are. And so she has like these regular practices that you have to do every week. And then she takes you through this course, this 12 week course about how to like break through that writer's block or whatever it is that you need to break through. And so writing morning pages is one of the first, I think it might even be the first thing that she really talks about after she says like, everybody has the ability to be an artist, no matter what you think of yourself. And here's how I'm going to teach you how to do that. The very first thing that you need to do is write morning pages. And I think I've had this book in my possession for probably close to 12 years. And I've never actually made it all the way through the program. But I have always been able to do morning pages. That's like the one thing that I can keep coming back to and helps me at any point in in my life of needing to figure out what I believe or what I want or what's important to me. I just sit down and start writing. And she's very specific about the way that she does it. She's very specific about the way that you're supposed to do it. Um, You don't want to do too little and you don't want to do too much because if you do too little, it's not going to be supportive enough. And if you do too much, it's you're not going to be able to allow yourself to grow out of it. And so like, there's all of these different specifications. So I attempt to follow those parts of it, but I've never really been able to make my entire way through her whole 12 week program. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so what, what does it bring to you? How does it support you in your kind of personal journey? Uh, So it's the place where I allow like, allow all of the things that I'm not ready to say to other people yet. Even if it's like me trying to figure out what it means to be on this journey. It's the place where I can say those things before I am ready to express them vocally, I suppose. But it's also like the place where I just go and write and recognize what it is that I need to have happen, like what it is that I need to talk about, what it is that's bothering me, what's underneath the layer of consciousness. So it has that capacity to allow me to dig deeper and figure out what it is that's challenging and dramatic and that I've been ignoring or all of the different pieces of the stuff that's under the surface, I guess. So it has a way of allowing me to like figure out what's really real, what's really going on and what I'm avoiding or what I'm not ready to deal with. And it also has the ability to allow me to figure out how I want to express myself in the world more accurately. It's kind of like how you would never ever hear somebody swear from a pulpit, but they need to be able to like, like, How do you get from that moment of like, I'm so angry or frustrated about a thing that I just need to curse to, okay, now I can tell you why I'm angry and frustrated about a thing. Yeah. So writing down helps me get the curse words out before I actually talk about what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love that. That's great. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. We all need those places. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And you can find Reverend Danielle's morning writing practice in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com slash library, where you can listen to her guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith, and Ron Kelly composes our splendiferous music too. If this episode connected with you, subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. They really do help spread the word about the show. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping Faith Pod, or send us an email at hello at keepingfaithpod.com. We love hearing from you. Next week, we'll talk to Luke LaRock about his life defying labels as a vegetarian, science-affirming, Jesus-loving Christian who struggles with the term evangelical. But until then, I'll be holding you in hope and faith. I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.